Good morning, everybody. We're going to be finishing up our series in the book of Habakkuk that we've been kind of sporadically going through the summer this morning. And so let me pray for us, and we will get to Habakkuk 3. Lord, we thank you that your eyes are fixed on us and your ears are attentive to our prayers this morning. And we thank you that we can humble ourselves under your mighty hand and cast our anxieties on you because we know that you care for us. And we thank you that that you were the one who did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. And so how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Lord, we thank you this morning that, that all of these things are true of you, that you are mindful of us, you care for us, your eyes are fixed on us, and you love us, and you have redeemed us, and you will redeem us. And then we admit at the same time that, that life is sometimes overwhelming, and we see things in this world, and we see destruction, and we see evil, and we see pain in this world that, that sometimes perplexes us. And we thank you for books like Habakkuk where you address this and, and you lead us through um, perplexing and disturbing things through a, through a book like Habakkuk. So we thank you for this book. I pray that you would use it this morning to, to comfort us where we need to be comforted and to, to press us and to disturb us where we need to be pressed and disturbed. So would you use this passage this morning in our lives to strengthen our faith, to comfort us, to encourage us, and, and, and maybe for those who are here who don't know you, that you would even use this passage to lead them to faith and to give them a new heart and a new spirit. Amen. Ms. Hilda, thanks for reading that. You had quite the chunk to read, so <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and if you have your bulletin, you'll see that I titled this sermon, A Peculiar Joy. And I titled it that because of chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, in the context of the book as a whole. If you look at verse 18, Habakkuk says, this is how he ends the book, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And God the Lord is my strength, He makes my feet like the deer's, He makes me tread on my high places. And so there's the joy, but why do I call it a peculiar joy? I call it a peculiar joy because of the context of this book as, as a whole. So if we, if we go back to chapter 1, Habakkuk asked God why he was doing nothing about all of the wickedness that ran rampant in Judah. The, the southern kingdom of Israel. And, and so the people of Judah had been unfaithful to God, and yet it seemed that God was doing nothing about it. And Habakkuk was perplexed over this. And so he asked God, why are you doing nothing about all of the evil in Judah? Well, then God responded. And God's response was, no, I, I am going to do something about all of the evil in Judah. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the Babylonians, and they will be my agent of justice, and they will crush Judah. That's not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. 
And so Habakkuk was even more confused by the response that he received from the Lord. And so he asked the Lord later in chapter 1, he says, God, how could you do this? How, how could you use a people who are more wicked than we are to punish us? How could you use a people more wicked than we are to, to, to judge us? And on top of that, he said, Lord, the Babylonians don't even worship you. They don't worship you. They don't trust you. And so if they conquer us, they're going to think that they conquered us by their own might. They're going to think that this happened not by your hand, but by their hand. You can't do that. So that's chapter 1. You get to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, God responds again to Habakkuk. And he says, first, the righteous will live by faith. He says, trust me. Second, he says, don't worry, Habakkuk. I will judge the Babylonians too. They will not get the last word, but I will hold them accountable for their wickedness and they too will be punished. And both of these things happened. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but it seems most likely that Habakkuk received this vision around 609 B.C., about 20 years later, in 586, Jerusalem was flattened by Babylon. And then less than 50 years later, in 539, the Persians flattened Babylon. So this happened. So you know, if you're visiting today, you're not a Christian, we want you to know that we believe that the God of the Bible is the God of history that he rules and reigns over all things, and that these things happen, and these things happen because God willed them to happen. So we want you to know that if you're visiting with us today. But that's why I say this is a peculiar joy. It, it's peculiar because Habakkuk was just told that his country is about to be, in, it's about to be destroyed by an invading army. And yet he ends with joy. That's peculiar. That is strange in the eyes of the world that Habakkuk could end in that place. How? How did he end in that place? How did he end in joy in light of these dire circumstances? And, you know, I think this is a pertinent question for all of us. Even as you think about what Charlie shared this morning, I mean, even in our church, there's loss and pain and sickness. And so this question, how can we have joy in dire circumstances, is a question that's incredibly pertinent to us today. So I want to help us see how Habakkuk ended in this place. Make sense? So I've got four points that are going to help us see how did he end in joy. The first is Habakkuk reflects. Second, Habakkuk anticipates. Third, Habakkuk waits. And then lastly, Habakkuk will rejoice. So he reflects, he anticipates, he waits, and he will rejoice. First, let's talk about Habakkuk reflecting and anticipating. These happen together in verses 3 through 15. In these verses, Habakkuk is reflecting on God's power and God redeeming his people in the past. And at the same time, he is anticipating God's power and God redeeming his people in the future. So at the same time, he's reflecting 
and he's anticipating. And he primarily does this in these verses by reflecting on powerful, redemptive events in which God saved his people, starting with the exodus from Egypt onward. So that's kind of what he's doing, just big picture in these verses. And I want to point this out in a couple of particular places to help us see it. So verses 3 and 4, Habakkuk talks about God coming from Taman and from Paran. And these look, it's, it's hard to know exactly where these places are, but in general what Habakkuk's doing is he's tracing the movement of God with the people of Israel as God took them out of Egypt to Sinai, to the land that he promised. That's what he's doing. He's tracing the movement of God with his people out of Egypt to the promised land. So that's what he's doing in 3 and 4. In verse 5, he mentions pestilence and plague. And you know, these were a huge part of God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. And you see pestilence and plague moving forward in the promised land as God continued to deliver his people from their enemies. Verse 6 talks about how he shook the nations. I'm going to revisit that in a minute. Verse 7, you see these two names, Kushan and Midian. And these are, these are referring to enemies of Israel whom the Lord gave them victory over, particularly in the book of Judges. That's where you really see these two enemies. And you see that once the people of Israel was, were settled in the land, God delivered them. He redeemed them from these enemies. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about rivers. And that should maybe recall something if you're familiar with the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Rivers are something that God often divided for the people of Israel so that they could walk through dry land. You see it with the Red Sea, and you even see it multiple times as the people of Israel move towards the promised land. So that's what Habakkuk is thinking about as he recalls rivers. God working these redemptive acts in which he moved his people forward. Verse 11, the sun stood still. Same thing. This is, he's recalling this event in Joshua 10 when, in the same way, God worked this mighty redemptive act for his people. And the sun stood still. So again, we're seeing this over and over again. Then verses 12 and 13, this is where I want to revisit verse 6. Verses 12 and 13, he talks about threshing the nations in anger. And this is a reference to to all of the nations whom the Lord crushed through Israel and all of the nations whom he miraculously delivered the, the Israelites from as they settled in the land and possessed it. And, you know, this is a bit of an aside, but I, I, think, I think this is an important thing to say at this point. This, this reality that God wiped out nations for Israel is, is troubling to many people today. Uh, for a lot of people today, when they read this in the Old Testament, they, they see this as a genocide. It, it looks like a genocide that was an ethnic cleansing or it looks like a genocide that happened for the sake of land possession. And this is a really hard thing for people to, to wrestle with today. And it's important to point out that the Old Testament makes it really clear that what Israel did in moving into the Promised Land and, and killing the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, 
The Old Testament makes it really clear that the judgment that came on the Canaanites, it had nothing to do with their ethnicity. It had nothing to do with them being in the land. It had everything to do with them being wicked. And God had been patient with the Canaanites for hundreds and hundreds of years, giving them an opportunity to repent. And they didn't. And so actually what's happening here, it's a moral judgment from the Lord on the Canaanites. And he's using the Israelites to carry out this moral judgment. The Old Testament makes this really clear. If this is something you want to look more into, Leviticus 18 24 and 25 talk about this. It talks about how the Canaanites were killed because of their wickedness and God's patience had run out. Deuteronomy 9 5, it says the same thing. It says that the Lord brought the Israelites into the promised land not because they were so good. Well, it says he brought them into the promised land and removed the Canaanites, not because the Israelites were so good, but actually because the Canaanites were so wicked. And so this is really important to see. This is a really controversial today. And we want to remember that the Bible makes it really clear that this judgment came because of the wickedness of the Canaanites. And, and another thing that's important here, we believe as Christians that the punishment and the judgment of the Old Testament on the Canaanites is a pale shadow of what will come when Jesus comes back. And again, if you want a verse that kind of helps you see this, you can look at Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, it's made really clear that the judgment that comes when Jesus will return is far more severe than anything that happened in the Old Testament. And what we see in the New Testament is that God's people, those who are safe, will be those who are united with Christ by faith, but the wicked, those who will receive an even worse punishment than the Canaanites, are those who have not trusted in Christ. The New Testament makes this really clear. So I think that's really important to say. I know that's a bit of a side, but I think that's important because this is a pretty controversial thing. So anyway, let's get back to Habakkuk. There's one more thing I want to point out with these first two points. It's in verse 15. It's where he talks about the sea being trampled. Again, same thing. This is a reference to the parting of the Red Sea, where again, God flexed his muscles, showed his power, and redeemed his people. And this particular event, the parting of the Red Sea and the people of Israel passing through the water, this is probably the most epic of, of all of the redemptive acts that God worked for his people in the Old Testament. And so that's what Habakkuk is doing. He's, he's recalling all of these events in which God showed his power, when God delivered his people, when God showed his care for his people. So he's reflecting, and in reflecting, he's anticipating. He's anticipating that God's not going to change. He's anticipating that God saves his people. It's, it's as if Habakkuk is preaching to himself and preaching to future people who would read this book and preaching to us today, God is in control. And God saves his people. You can trust him. He's expecting and he's anticipating. So that's my first two points. Uh, this leads to my third point. He waits. And you see this in verse 16. 
And, you know, I, I appreciate how slowly you read this part, Ms. Hilda, because I want us to feel the weight of verse 16. Now, look at what Habakkuk says. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. You know, I wonder, have you ever had an experience like this where you receive news that made you want to throw up? Your knees shook a little bit at the news that you received. Uh, your, your body trembled, your lip quivered. You know, have you, have you ever heard news that was so sad, so perplexing, so disastrous that you just shook? That's Habakkuk in verse 16. He is coming face to face with the reality that his country is about to be destroyed and he just shakes at the news. Which leads to this last phrase, and you might have noticed this as, as Miss Hilda read it, um, this last phrase in chapter three, where it says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to, to come upon people who invade us. You might have noticed that this, this little phrase, it's actually really hard to translate. It's really difficult to figure out exactly what Habakkuk was saying. And if you look at any English translation, there's gonna be two, there's two most common translations. And so if you have an NIV, or if you have an ESV, it's gonna translate that phrase this way. It's gonna say, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So that's one way it's often translated. The other way is actually the way that Ms. Hilda read it. And if you have the NASB, this is the way the NASB is going to translate that phrase. It's going to say, because, so rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Now, you know, there's, there's a difference in the way those, there's a difference in those two translations. You see that? And the thing is, both of these ideas are present in Habakkuk, especially if you look at Habakkuk 2, that first translation, the way the NIV and the ESV translates it, that's Habakkuk 2. Habakkuk is wondering, God, how can you let the Babylonians get away with this? And he says, no, I will punish the Babylonians. I won't let, I won't let them off the hook. And so the idea of, I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon these people, that's Habakkuk 2. So again, that idea is in Habakkuk, but I'm not sure if that's what Habakkuk is trying to say. I, I actually think, it is, again, it's a hard phrase to translate, but I'm, I'm with Miss Hilda's translation. I think what Habakkuk is trying to say is my legs tremble beneath me because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. And you think about that, what Habakkuk is saying, and I think that makes more sense because of the context. Habakkuk just said that my lip quivers and I feel like I'm gonna throw up. Why? Because my country is about to be conquered and my home is gonna be flattened and I can't do anything about it. 
All I can do is wait quietly. That, I think that makes more sense in the context. You know, with me, does that make sense? So I think that's what Habakkuk is saying. And again, this leads to the fourth point. And with that in mind, with Habakkuk coming to this place where he says, I feel like I'm going to throw up because I know what's about to happen. I know that my country is about to be destroyed and all I can do is wait. That makes the conclusion of this chapter, I think, even more remarkable. That even though that's true, Habakkuk will rejoice. I mean, you think about that, that is remarkable. So let me pick up there. So my fourth point, he will rejoice. We see this in verse 17. And I notice in 17, he picks up right where he left off. He's talking about the fig tree doesn't blossom there's, there's no fruit on the vine. The produce of the olive fails. The field yields no food. And again, he's just talking about this idea of barrenness. Barrenness, sadness, emptiness. He's just picking up right where he left off. And that's what makes verse 18 so peculiar and so remarkable. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And God the Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the deer's. This shouldn't be lost on us how remarkable this is that this is where he ends. And it makes us think back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, 4, in chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord says to Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. That's what this is. Habakkuk 3, in this entire prayer, it's Habakkuk 2.4 lived out. That's all it is. And it leads Habakkuk to a strange and peculiar joy that I really don't think our world can offer us. That is strange and just simply peculiar to the world. That Habakkuk could end in a place of joy in light of his dire circumstances. And, you know, so as we think about this whole chapter, so these four points, Habakkuk reflects, Habakkuk anticipates, all he can do is wait, and yet he will rejoice. As, as we think back to verses 3 through 15 where he's reflecting, you know, I already mentioned this, but Probably the greatest event that Habakkuk reflects on is the event of the Red Sea being parted. And, and this should lead us to ask the question, of, as Christians today, what do we have that we can reflect on? So Habakkuk is reflecting on all of these events that get God powerfully worked as he led his people to the promised land. So we should ask, as Christians today, what do we have that we can reflect on? And you know, that's where I would say that we have a greater event in history to look back to than the parting of the Red Sea. Because what we have is God the Father in unison with God the Son and God the Spirit choosing to send His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners like you and me. We have the Father who enjoyed eternal, everlasting communion with His Son, choosing to send His Son 
into the world to be tortured, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be tormented, and to be killed so that we can be forgiven of our sin. What we have is God sending his son, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God and have peace with God. That's what we have. So the parting of the Red Sea that Habakkuk is reflecting on, it is nothing compared to what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. There is no event in history that illuminates God's power and God's commitment to redeem his people than the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no event that compares to it. That is what we have to reflect on. And I, I mentioned this verse as I prayed, but I think at this point we can't help but think about Romans 8.32. Sorry, Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32, we're told that God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how then will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, that's what Paul's doing in Romans 8. He's just like Habakkuk. He's calling our minds to reflect on what God has done. And, and so I would just say, you know, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you might know something about Habakkuk's experience. You know, maybe for you it's the aloneness you experience in your singleness. Maybe it's the sadness of losing someone dear to you. Maybe it's the pain of a struggling marriage. Maybe it's the hardship of not knowing where your next meal comes from or how you're going to pay your bills. Maybe it's a terrible work environment. Maybe it's a wayward child or a wayward grandchild. Maybe it's just an uncertain future that you don't know how to piece together. You know, those are a few examples of things that might lead to this feeling in our stomach that we feel like we're going to throw up, kind of like Habakkuk. If that's you, you have this promise you have the cross that you, look, you, that you can look back to 2,000 years ago. The greatest example in the world that God is powerful, that he loves you, and that he is committed to your redemption. And even though it's, it's obvious from Habakkuk's life that it's really difficult to square God loves me, God's committed to redeeming me, and he's all-powerful. It's really difficult to square that with the loss that Habakkuk experienced. I mean, that is, that is perplexing. And the same is true for us. But it's still true. He is committed to his people. He will redeem his people in this life or the next. And I think that's so much of Habakkuk. I think Habakkuk is in many ways pointing us to our true home. But I think this is where it gets kind of confusing. But I think as Christians, we wonder, but what does God redeeming me mean for my life now? What does it mean for some of those circumstances that I mentioned a few moments ago? What does it mean for those circumstances now? In many ways, this points us to our true home, the new heavens and the new earth. But in a mysterious way, it also promises that God loves you now. He's committed to your redemption now. He's committed to providing for you now. But there's still some mystery in that that I can't quite answer for us. You know, it makes me, I thought about this passage. I was 
in the hospital a week ago visiting two dear friends of mine. It's a couple, and um, the wife found out two weeks ago that she was diagnosed with leukemia. And I was spending some time with them in the hospital. And, and as I left the hospital, I walked out with my friend, and I kind of asked him how he was doing. And I mean, just like you would expect, he said, yeah, this has been life-altering, and it's hard. But then he said this to me, he said, but we trust our God. It's so simple, but we trust our God. And I, I think my friend, he gets Romans 8, 32. He gets it, that because of the cross, we can know that God is committed to us, we can know that he's for us, we can know that he loves us, and we, we can know that he's going to provide for us, ultimately. And that leaves a whole lot of mystery in this life. But we can still know that he's with us. So, as I think about what does this mean for us, you know, what, what is the application for us today, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, and the application here, it's not a, it's not a chastisement that if you're having a hard time, you need to have stronger faith. You know, the, the application here isn't, have more faith. The application is look at your God. That's the application. Reflect and remember who your God is. Look to your great God who is in control and who is committed to you and who loves you if you are in Christ. That is the application. Don't focus on your faith. Focus on him. Just like Habakkuk did. Habakkuk wasn't focused on his faith. He was focused on his God and all the great works of redemption that God had done in the history of his people. That's the application. And we sing this song often of He Will Hold Me Fast. I mean, that song captures it well that even when my faith will fail, He will hold me fast. I mean, that is the application, to fix our eyes not on our faith but on our God. And, and maybe another way to put this is this idea of, of preaching to ourselves. You see this in Habakkuk 3 that what Habakkuk does is he preaches the truth to himself about who God is and what God has done and what God will do. And there's a, there's a famous pastor by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Maybe some of you have heard of him. But he, he has some really great thoughts on this whole idea of, as a Christian, you've got to preach to yourself. You've got to choose to preach the truth to yourself. And I want to read it to you. He, he writes this in his book, Spiritual Depression. And this is what he says about the idea of preaching to yourself. He says, the main trouble in this whole matter, and he's... he's Writing, he's actually preaching on Psalm 42. And it's a psalm that is similar to Habakkuk 3. And as he's preaching on Psalm 42, this is what he says. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. He says, am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc., Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. 
Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Thou art cast down, O my soul. He asks his soul has been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then, here's the key, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance who is also the health of my countenance and my God. So again, Martin Lord joins us saying the same thing. And I want to protect us from seeing, he's not saying, have more faith, have more faith, have more faith. He's saying preach to yourself in the sense of you've got to remind yourself what is true of you, what is true of God, what God has done for all of history, how God has always redeemed his people, and how God will not change in the future and he will continue to redeem his people. You've got to preach to yourself by reminding yourself of who God is and what he has done and what is true of him. That's what Habakkuk does. That's what Lloyd-Jones exhorts us to do. And I think as Christians, it's what, we, it's what we must do as well. Remember who our God is and anticipate that our God will not change. Uh, so one last thing before, before I close us. Um, you know, I realize that, that some of us who are here this morning aren't Christians and, and, and maybe don't even believe in God. And at, at its core, the book of Habakkuk helps us wrestle with how can God be in control and good and yet let all of this evil happen? I mean, at the core of Habakkuk, that's what Habakkuk's wrestling with. And I realize that maybe for some of you who are here who you're not a Christian, that might be why you're not a Christian. You might not be a Christian. You might, you might not believe in God because you see so much evil in the world and you think there's no way the God of the Bible could be real in light of all of the evil that I see. And, and, you know, honestly, I think this is the hardest question that as Christians we have to wrestle with. This question of how can so much evil exist if the God of the Bible is true? I really do. I think this is the hardest question. But if that's you, I just want to say that while that's a really hard question, if you remove God completely from the equation, I think that you end up having to answer some questions that are far more difficult. And you end up having to live by faith and not by sight in some ways that are just as challenging as the ways that we have to live by faith and not by sight as Christians. And one of these is if you completely remove God from the equation, then 
that means that everything is random, everything is accidental. It's just the collision of atoms. And if that's you, then that means there's no purpose. It means there's no meaning. And if you really carry your worldview to the extreme that you should, to the extreme that people more honest than you have carried it, it must lead you to the conclusion that there is nothing about you that is more significant or more meaningful or more purposeful than a chicken that you eat at Chick-fil-A or a mosquito that you clap with your hands. I mean, really, it's just the difference in the collision of atoms. And I think that you know in your bones that there is something different between you and a chicken that you eat at Chick-fil-A. I think you know in your bones that you matter more than a chicken or a mosquito. But you have no basis on which to make that claim. So I say that, I want to address the fact that this whole issue, how can the God of the Bible coexist with all of the evil we see in this world? It's a hard question. I think it's the hardest question we've got to wrestle with. But if you take God out of the equation, I think you have even more difficult questions you've got to wrestle with. That if you're honest enough to carry your worldview where you should, you see it. So, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you again for Habakkuk 3 and the hard truth, but the good truth that you reveal to us in this book. And I'm thankful that you don't, you don't avoid hard questions, but you address them even when you don't always give us an easy answer that's wrapped in a bow. And I just, I pray for those of us who are here today who are Christians, Lord, I pray that you would help us live by faith, even as our circumstances may perplex us. And I pray for those who are here who are not Christians, that you would give them the strength to live by faith, and that you would give them new hearts and new spirits, and that you would show them the truth of your word and the truth of the gospel. So, Lord, I pray these things. We look to you to do this. We know that your word, it just falls on deaf ears without the power of your spirit. So I just ask that by the power of your spirit, you would take these things from Habakkuk 3 and apply them to our lives and use them for our good and for your glory. Amen.